Well, all right. Here we are in part two on our excursus into the chaotic waters and how they are described sometimes as monsters. Uh, uh, Last week, you should really listen to last week's episode because this one won't make any sense and you'll think I'm crazy, which might be true. But for last week, we dove into a lot of biblical Old Testament passages that talk about these dragons and Leviathan and these sea monsters. And we even discovered that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, that God filled the waters with the Tanin or the sea monsters. And these sea monsters, these weren't sharks or whales or anything like that. They were described in other Old Testament passages as being fire-breathing dragons and destructive serpents and multi-headed leviathans. And it left me with this lingering question. And I know for a fact that some of you thought the same questions. And it was this. One, why would God create that? And two, were these actually real creatures? Like, did these creatures actually exist? Or is something else going on with how they're being used throughout the Bible? So without wasting any time, uh, let's just wrap a nice bow on this and let's get into what is going on with these monsters. And we're going to quickly do that so we can then get into what I think is the, the cooler topic of God being depicted as this master of the waters, having complete and utter mastery and control over these chaotic waters. So to begin, what am I supposed to take away from the idea that God created this tanin or this sea dragon, the sea monster thing? And I think it's first important to quickly note that in the ancient Near East, which would be Israel and their surrounding neighboring cultures, uh, their neighboring cultures had a very similar view regarding these chaos dragons and leviathans and these type of beasts. And, and we know from archaeology and scholarly work that one of Israel's close neighbors who share a very similar Semitic language uh, is the culture of Ugarit. Uh, There are some tablets that were dug up and they found out that they talked about these type of sea dragons. They talked about Leviathan and they talked about Leviathan in a very similar way that the Bible does. In his description, describing it as a a fleeing, twisted serpent and multi-headed and all of these things, it's very similar. And what's interesting to know is that for these other cultures and their mythologies, the, the Leviathan, the chaos waters, all of these things, it was an obstacle that their gods had to go and fight and defeat and struggle against in order to bring about creation. And this was something that these cultures and their mythologies were completely afraid of. These beasts were completely and utterly uh, devastating and brought about fear in their mythologies. But however, in Genesis 1, as far as the Bible is concerned, that's not how the sea monster is described, is it? Because for Yahweh, this isn't a beast that needs to be fought and destroyed or struggled with. It's not a beast that's on par with Yahweh. It's simply just another creature that Yahweh 
created and allows to live in his creation. It's not even a threat. It's not even placed in the same level or category as God, as something that existed uh, with God for all eternity. This is something that God created. And in this sense, the Bible is acting as a polemic by taking something that other mythologies are so concerned about and and put so much weight in uh their creation narrative surrounding these chaotic dragons and the defeat of these other gods. But to Yahweh, it's just like another pet. Because remember, we're told that in Genesis 121, that God just separated these chaos waters, right? He handled that problem. And where does the Tanin, where does the sea dragon come into play? Well, the Bible says, oh, you know, that sea monster dragon that everyone's so afraid of. Yeah, God just tossed it in the ocean with all the other little fish and all the other little things that swim around in there. God just, he just tossed them in the ocean. No big deal. No problem. And the question is, is the Tanin, is the sea dragon that Genesis 1 talks about, is it supposed to be understood as literal? Like this was a real life creature that existed. This real dragon really existed. Or... Is it meant to be taken symbolically to describe the embodiment of chaotic waters, of death, of of all of these types of things? And I'm led to believe that the Tanin and Leviathan, that these are meant to be taken symbolically. These are symbols that are describing the dangerous, larger-than-life, unstoppable, chaotic waters and disastrous things that come from it. And there are a few reasons that I'm led to this conclusion. If you remember last week, we read a few passages that describe the Tanin, the Leviathan, and I don't know if you noticed, but if we actually took these literally, then we have some problems. Because some of these passages would directly contradict Genesis 1 and other passages that the Tanin or Leviathan is mentioned in. And the one that we'll note today is Psalm 74, verse 12. We read this last week. We're just going to read through it again. And I want you, while I'm reading this, think of the sea monster and the Leviathan. Imagine that this was an actual real creature that was in play here. And then we'll take that thought and look back at Genesis 1 and see if there's any problems there. So Psalm 74, verse 12. Yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So a few things to point out is that the psalmist here is speaking in past tense. The psalmist is recalling the creation. It's a replaying of Genesis 1, but it's through the words of the psalm writer here. And if you notice, in verse 16 and 17, there is very similar language in actions that are taken from Genesis 1, namely that God established the heavenly lights, that he fixed the boundaries of the earth, He made the seasons, he split the oceans, he he did all of these things, and this is a retelling of the creation narrative from Genesis 1. 
So it's clear that the psalmist is recalling Genesis 1 here. But we're, we're told in verse 13 that before Yahweh actually created the lights and fixed the boundaries and did all of these things, we're told that he broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters and crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now, if taken literally, this would be problematic because as we know, we're never told in Genesis 1 that God fought a multi-headed dragon before creation. We're told that he, he didn't fight the sea monsters. The tanin is the same word here. We're told that he just tossed the tanin in the ocean to play around with the other fish. So if taken literally, if the Leviathan and the sea monsters are meant to be real creatures, then we have a problem because Genesis 1 is telling a completely different story than what the psalmist is saying here. But this reading would make a lot more sense if the Leviathan and the Tanin is being used symbolically to describe the chaotic sea. Because we're told in Genesis 1, in the second verse, that God's spirit was over the surface of the deep, over the wild and waste waters. And we're also told that God brought order to these chaotic waters by separating them with the rakia or the heavens. And it seems clear that what the psalmist is doing here is using the Leviathan and the Tanin, the sea monster, symbolically to describe the chaotic waters in Genesis 1. Because then that would make sense. This, this symbolism of God crushing the chaotic waters and crushing the heads of the Leviathan, which is symbolic of the chaotic waters, makes sense because God did crush their power by separating them with the Rakia. So it really does seem like Leviathan and Tanin here is meant to be taken symbolically. And there are a few other examples that I could show. One, if you want to just kind of study it for yourself, would be Isaiah 27, I believe. Uh, we read it last week. And there, Isaiah talks about how God will crush Leviathan in the end of days. He's talking about the eschaton. He's talking about a future event where God would crush Leviathan. Now, if the Leviathan is this one sea monster or maybe multiple sea monsters, how does it make sense then that in Psalm 74, God already crushed them to bring about creation? But Isaiah is telling us that God hasn't crushed them yet and that he will be crushing the Leviathan in the eschaton. If these are meant to be taken literally, you can see how that creates a problem. But if Leviathan, the sea monsters, and all of this are symbols to talk about chaotic waters and death and destruction, it makes a lot more sense how Isaiah can say, hey, God, you're going to crush death and destruction in the future. And how the psalmist can also say, hey, God actually crushed the chaotic, destructive waters to bring about creation. So... I hope that kind of gives you guys a better idea of what's happening. I know I really didn't sum that up that well in the first part <laughs> uh, last week, but I really do think that these are meant to be taken symbolically. But this is still really unique imagery that the Bible uses to talk about chaos and disorder and death and destruction that we just don't think about in our cultures today. So I want to reflect on something real quick. How is all of this talk about these sea monsters and what God does to them. How does this elevate Yahweh in contrast with 
the neighboring mythological gods of Israel's neighbors. So we left off with the question, and in order to answer that, let's go on a little journey. Let's look at God's authority over the waters throughout the Old Testament. We're going to start in Genesis 1. This will be a, a quick recap here. So Genesis 1 presents God as the water tamer. He's not really like the Avatar, the last airbender. He's not bending water and all that, but he, he's the last water tamer. Look at Genesis 1, uh, 1 through 2. We, we see that God creates by the means of his spirit, hovering over the dark cosmic waters that are wild and waste. And because of this, this makes human communities and human life uh, possible now. Originally, it was impossible, but what God's about to bring about in the first two verses is starting the process of order and, and structure. Let's look at day one. On day one, God says, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated between the light and between the darkness. So that's one of the first obstacles is darkness. Let's look at day two. God says, let there be a dome or a rakia, and it'll separate the waters above the rakia and the waters below the rakia. And then on day three, God says, let the waters under the skies gather together into one place. And let the, the earth or the dry land become visible. So here we, we have a few examples where God is controlling the waters. He, he's ordering them in the way that he sees fit. And right off the bat, the Bible is setting us up to look at Yahweh differently than the neighboring mythological gods. And I know it may sound weird that I keep bringing up these other uh, cultures, beliefs, and gods, and their views, because you might be thinking, well, the Bible isn't that. The Bible is talking about our one God, Yahweh, and, and Jesus, and that's their story. But we have to remember that Israel's neighbors were heavy into these mythologies. They had their idols, they had their statues, they made their sacrifices, they even sacrificed their kids to these idols in some instances. Uh, their, their beliefs were strong. And as we know from the Old Testament, Israel was no stranger to interacting with these other cultures. And oftentimes, far too often, even, even adopting their gods and worshiping their false gods. Israel did this time and time again. So we know that that a large portion of Israel didn't just have knowledge of what these other people believed, but a lot of them practiced it as well. And so the Bible isn't just acting as a book to teach Christians uh, the origins of Israel and things like that. The, the Bible was written to these ancient Israelites. Genesis is written to these ancient Israelites. And this would have been so important for them to read and to meditate on because they would be surrounded, oftentimes in exile, to these other cultures that would be subjugating their gods on them. And oftentimes Israel would willingly worship their other gods and abandon Yahweh. And here the Bible is not only acting as a, a guide of truth, but it's acting as 
as a, as a polemic to these other beliefs. The Bible will take jabs at these other beliefs and say, oh, hey, yeah, you, you know this God? Well, look at Yahweh. Look at how much better Yahweh is. It's interacting in that way. So uh, this is why I bring up all these other mythological gods and their surrounding beliefs because for Israel, this was knowledge on the front of their brains. And for many of them, this was knowledge that they believed and trusted and practiced in, even though they were supposed to stay loyal to Yahweh. But anyway, uh, if you remember our conversations a few weeks ago, we, we just barely dipped our pinky toe into the surrounding culture's creation myths involving their gods like Baal and Tiamat and Marduk. And when we read through a brief summary of these myths, we saw a reoccurring theme. We saw that the way that creation could be brought about was through death and destruction. That these gods had to fight and kill each other in order to bring about order and to a previously disordered, chaotic, watery state. But here, Yahweh doesn't have to do that. Yahweh simply just says some words. And what's interesting is the words that Yahweh chooses to use to bring about order. Notice that he doesn't harshly command and demand the light to be or for the rakia to separate the waters or for the earth to come up from the waters he he doesn't command them in a demanding way but what god does say is let there be god is is using language that is inviting he's inviting creation to be and and this is a a foreshadowing to god's desire to partner with humanity in his good creation, to to let humanity work with him on this good, good creation that he's made. But let's get back to God's authority over the water. So we, we saw what he did in Genesis 1, splitting the waters in half above the heavens and below and uh, causing the waters to recede into the oceans and rivers. But what else has God done with the waters? Well, how about Noah's flood? Let's look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. It says this, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So we all know the events that led up to Noah's flood. And that wickedness leads God to bring about the flood to rid the earth of evil. But notice how God does it. He causes the fountains of the great deep. Now, if you remember a few episodes ago, we discovered that the great deep in Genesis 1 verse 2 that that God's spirit is hovering over, the Hebrew word there is to home. And it's talking about just abysmal, deep, non-life permitting waters. Super deep, non-life permitting waters. And it's the same word that's being used here that... God caused the fountains of the great Tahome to burst forth. And he also, you know, he opens up the windows of the heavens. No big deal. <laughs> and if you remember, in Genesis 1, God separates the waters with the rakia, that solid dome-like structure that we talked about. And also Genesis 1 calls the rakia the heavens. And this is the same thing here. So, so what happened here? God causes the Tahom to burst forth fountains from the ground. 
and he caused the windows of the Rakia, the solid dome. He opened up windows to cause those waters to come from above. So what's going on here? Well, remember what we just read in Genesis 1 on days 2 and 3. On day 2, like I said, Yahweh installs the Rakia, the heavens, that dome to hold back the waters above it. And on day 3, he gathered all the waters of the great deep, the Tahom, into one place so that dry land can appear. Both of these actions on day 2 and 3 were necessary for human life. And these were steps that God brought about to bring order. But with this judgment of a flood, God brings about an act of decreation, of disorder. God undoes what he did on day two and three by causing the great deep, the Tahom, to leave its ordered place in the seas and by opening the windows of the very rakia that he installed to hold back the waters. God has full control over the waters. Let's look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 20 through 23, just a little bit later after this. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So what what just happened here? Well, as we're told, all of the earth's inhabitants were just wiped out. (laughs) They were decreated. The very inhabitants that God populated the earth with on days five and six, God just undid. The flood was a way of decreating what God created in days five and six. The, the flood was not just an act of judgment. It was an act of decreation. God, through his judgment, was reversing the steps he took in Genesis 1. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that trippy? That's really cool. Let's look at Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, some of the aftermath of what happened here in the flood. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. So when this judgment is over, God then restores order to his creation. And through Noah, he decides to start fresh on this whole humanity thing. (laughs) And that doesn't really last that long because humanity continues to stink it up. (laughs) But, But notice what caused the waters to subside. We're told that God made a wind blow over the earth. Now, with our understanding of wind and what that means, we may come up with a lot of weird images on how just wind can cause this enormous flood to just simply go away. But if we take a look at the Hebrew word here, we can get a better idea of what's going on. Because the word that gets translated as wind is the Hebrew word ruach. And ruach means breath, wind, or spirit. And this is actually important because this has a callback to Genesis 1 verse 2. I'm going to read it again for you. It says, The earth was without form and void, or wild and waste, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here, in Genesis 1-2, the phrase, the Spirit of God, 
is the same Hebrew word ruach, which would read the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, Genesis 8 verse 1 uses the same phraseology as Genesis 1 verse 2. And I think it's trying to prompt us to compare what's going on between these two passages. So if we look here, both times in Genesis 1 verse 2 and Genesis 8 verse 1, the Ruach is going over the waters. In both times, this Ruach is the precursor to order being brought about. So with that in mind, let's reread Genesis 8 1 through 3 and notice how it mirrors the steps that God took to calm the waters in days 2 and 3. So God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a ruach blow over the earth and the waters subsided. What happened after the waters subsided? Well, the fountains of the Tehom and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained. So the Tehom, the deep waters, and the windows of the heavens were closed and the waters receded from the earth. This is a complete replaying of what happened in days two and three. Yahweh not only has the power to bring order by taming the chaotic waters, but he has the power to cause judgment by bringing disorder, by releasing these chaotic waters. And he also has power over the waters to bring about order again by taming the waters once more. And this is just one of many instances where Yahweh is shown to have full, unstoppable control and authority over these chaotic waters in ways that none of Israel's neighboring mythologies, gods, could ever touch. And a few more examples that we can quickly note of God having complete mastery over the waters would be Exodus, right? The Red Sea, splitting the Red Sea. God has mastery over the waters there. Um, also in Joshua 3 and 4, uh, when they cross the Jordan River to enter into the promised land, God has mastery over those waters as well. That'd be something good for y'all to read for further study. But more importantly, what does all of this say about Jesus and his claim to being God? Well, let's look at some events that puts Jesus in the position of authority over the waters. Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41 on that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So there's so many things that we could talk about and study in this story. But right now our focus is on Jesus and his interaction with the waters. So with that being said, notice that in verse 39, these waves were crashing. It's crazy. The disciples were freaking out. But what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and sea. Now, normally this would be 
overlooked as just some dude who's yelling at the ocean (laughs) to calm the heck down. But knowing the claims that Jesus made and the biblical knowledge that the disciples would have had, this command by Jesus and the way that Mark frames it is making a very bold claim about Jesus's deity. Because multiple times in the Old Testament, God is said to rebuke and command the waters. And by doing this, this is a sign of his full power and authority over chaos and creation. Look at Psalm 104, verse 5 through 6. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters stood above the mountains, and at your rebuke they fled. So here, Yahweh, God, has the power to rebuke the waters that covered the earth, and they instantly obeyed. Same thing happened in Psalm 106. Look at this. Yet he saved them from, for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. Once again, God is said to be rebuking the waters, and he has full control over the waters at this rebuke. Uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, same thing. In the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. So you're starting to see the pattern here. God is depicted as the only one who has the power to rebuke the waters and control them. And here, Jesus doesn't just scream at the waters, (laughs) but he specifically rebukes them. And guess what? They listen. And for the disciples who know, their, who know their Hebrew Bible, it wouldn't be too hard for them to connect the dots about what Jesus just did. And it's more than, than power, though, because this is an act that clearly puts Jesus in the same power, authority, and status that God has. And the disciples are seeing this. The disciples clearly are like, uh, hey, guys, who is this dude? that even the wind and the sea obey him. I don't think this was, I think this was a rhetorical question from the disciples where where they're clearly going, oh, snap. Hey, yo, haven't we been taught this our whole lives that the only person who's ever been said to be able to rebuke the waters and control them is God. But Jesus is doing the same thing here. And this isn't some claim that Jesus has some sort of divine power. No, no, no. This is a claim that Jesus is that divine power. Let's look at another example. One of the most famous ones, Jesus walking on water. I'm going to read John's account just because it's nice and short. And this episode's already long. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So we all know this story about Jesus walking on water. Everybody knows the story. And this is obviously a far greater claim to Jesus's authority and power. Uh, This isn't a claim of Jesus having some sort of magic trick ability to have some illusion to walk on water. No, no, 
the Bible is making a very great and specific claim about Jesus' authority to simply walk over these chaotic waters. And in the minds of the disciples, and honestly, in the minds of anyone who knows their Hebrew Bible, it, it would be very clear that this was no ordinary man, but this was a man who was God, who's doing the same things that God does. And this would be more evident for those who knew the Hebrew Bible, because one of all the passages that we've already discussed showing Yahweh being in full power and control over the waters, but also this passage here in Job 9, I didn't know about this until doing this study. This is really cool. Job chapter 9, verse 7 through 8. He's talking about God, talking about his attributes, and it says, it says this, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So trampled the waves of the sea. This is an interesting way to describe God's power. What's also interesting is the Hebrew for this, because the Hebrew word for trampled is darak, which means to tread or march. That's interesting. Other translations have noticed this, and they'll say they'll render this to say that God marched on the waves of the sea. So here in Job, God is depicted as having full power over these chaotic waters, so much so that he simply marches across them. Hmm. I wonder, what is it we just found out that Jesus was doing? Oh yeah, Jesus was walking across the water in full authority and in full control of these chaotic waves. It's the very same way that God's described in Job chapter 9, that he's marching across the sea. Jesus is doing the same exact thing here. And this is yet again another subtle sign of Jesus' claim to be God. And not only are these things to point out to those who claim that the Gospels never make the claim that Jesus is God, <laughs> but these are also things to show how the Bible speaks about God's full power and authority of the forces of chaos and destruction to show that God is in full control. And when he wants to bring about order, there is order. When he wants to bring about judgment and disorder, that follows as well. And this same authority is obviously found in Jesus as the one who tames the chaotic waters and marches across them in full authority. And bringing all of this back, to the sea monsters and Leviathan being symbols of chaos and death, God has full power and authority over those as well. And all of these symbols that for Israel's neighboring cultures were uncontrollable and reckless, these are no match for the power of Yahweh. And this is yet again another way that Genesis 1 takes jabs at the beliefs and mythologies of its surrounding cultures. And with that, at least for a moment... <laughs> We can finally move on from the waters.